this podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello and welcome back to Master the MRCPCH, our new podcast from the Gosh Learning Academy where we'll be speaking to the experts here at Great Ormond Street Hospital to give you a run through of an interesting topic on the RCPCH curriculum. My name is Dr. Rian Thomas and I'm the Digital Learning Education Fellow here at Great Ormond Street and a Registrar in Clinical Genetics. Today's episode is part two of our podcast on cerebral palsy and today we'll be focusing on diagnosis and management. We're thrilled to have Dr. Ellie Yule back on the podcast. Dr. Yule is an ST7 grid trainee in paediatric neurodisability and trainee representative for the British Academy of Childhood Disability. This topic corresponds to the RCPCH theory exam syllabus under neurodevelopment and disability under the section on assessing, diagnosing and managing developmental disorders, learning difficulties and causes of disability, including cerebral palsy and abnormal movement disorders. For those preparing for their clinical exams, a patient with cerebral palsy could be included in many different stations of the exam, including neurology, developmental assessment and history taking. If you've missed part one, we'd recommend having a listen to that one before diving into this podcast. And we hope you enjoy today's podcast. So thank you for coming back, Ellie. Hi again. So we're going to be talking about cerebral palsy again today, but we're going to be focusing on the diagnosis and management. So just to start off, what would you like people to get out of listening to this podcast? Great, let's have a think. So I think having an understanding about how we might diagnose cerebral palsy and then understanding the importance of multidisciplinary management really and that it's usually it takes a whole team around these children to help them thrive and participate and we're usually only one small part of that perfect so shall we start off by just having a think about diagnosis so Mm -hmm. thinking about I guess how a diagnosis is made who's involved in that process and how it usually goes for patients and, and families yeah yeah we can do that for sure I think it's important to think about that typical trio of of things that we have when we're diagnosing and it's not the only condition where this trio is important is does the history fit does the examination fit and adding into that do the investigations confirm or refute what we're thinking so we have to think about does the history fit if we go back to our first podcast when you're examining the child and you've got this motor motor difference What's the motor difference and does the history of what we know about what's happened to that child fit with the motor difference we're seeing? So have we considered that were they premature, low birth weight? Was there a setup for hypoxia? Was there a setup for severe jaundice? Was there a setup for a structural difference there, like a bleed, a vascular event, like a, a stroke? And so do those match together? And if so, do our radiology findings confirm that? So it's important to get the right people involved to be doing the imaging at the right time for that child. Some children will have their diagnosis of cerebral palsy made before any neuroimaging because it's appropriate and right for them. If there's been a severe hypoxic event with a forelimb motor impairment and they're clearly fitting the criteria for having a cerebral palsy. Nowadays, children will have their MRIs 
done, but you couldn't be calling this a fall in motor disorder, a cerebral palsy before that. So it's that that trio is the one really. And I guess it's important to kind of communicate that to, to parents and patients, isn't it? While, while you're going through through that process of diagnosis as well. Yeah, definitely. And sort of signposting that this might be something down the road for that family that we're carefully considering because the examination of the baby will change over time. Begin with, they can be quite floppy infants actually before that spasticity develops. They can be quite centrally floppy, low tone. And then it's later in the coming months that they they have the the stiffness and the dystonia and that um, spasticity develop. And I guess that segues quite nicely to think about management. So what's the best way to kind of think about how we manage uh, patients with cerebral palsy? I think it's really important to acknowledge that we're usually one small part of a team around the child and it's about maximising their function and participation. So we've got a job to do there often with some good history taking examination and recognizing the condition and recognizing the need to investigate for possible mimics or confirming our diagnosis and we've got a role to play to make sure that we're prescribing properly or getting them access to the people who can prescribe properly if medical management is appropriate for them but also recognizing that intervention with therapies is going to be really key for these children so physio occupational speech and language so if we thought about the doctor's role, we would be involved in these MDTs around these children. Some children will benefit from medical management of their tone, treating spasticity, treating some dystonia. So there are a whole host of, of medications out there and the way that they're used within each movement disorder service can be quite bespoke, but it's making sure the right people are prescribing and titrating these medicines in the right way and working closely between the community community care for this child and the tertiary centres to, to change these medicines as is right for the children. So when we think about treatments for cerebral palsy, we've got the category of medical treatments and those medical treatments are going to predominantly focus on treatment of tone and getting that balance right for a child of decreasing high tone or dystonia versus losing control of your trunk and neck can be really, really tricky and is also usually guided by some specialist input from a tertiary centre. Some of these drugs as well are going to be more helpful when the predominant symptom of having that difference in tone is pain. And broadly speaking, most of these drugs work by affecting the balance between the excitatory and inhibitory systems going on in the central nervous system. So your GABAergic systems and your cholinergic systems. I think at this point, it's important to acknowledge the pharmacology of some of them isn't completely understood. So I'm going to stick with more about the symptoms and signs that you would be using them for. So starting with the more commonly used drugs that will be useful, uh, gabapentin, which many people would know as a drug for neuropathic pain. Obviously, that, that also maps on being useful for painful dystonia. And it's often one of the first line drugs you'll see for children who are experiencing painful dystonia. And then getting into the more severe end of dystonia you've got drugs like clonidine which can be delivered orally or by a patch or in infusions for children who are really unstable and needing intensive care for severe crisis of tone next line drugs were definitely ones being managed by a tertiary service things like trihexaphenidyl um, the pharmacology is not completely understood i don't know if it has a direct effect on the gabaergic pathways but it is something that can help relax dystonia 
and then the other drugs are going forward that can be delivered in more specialist ways would um, be baclofen so again baclofen is useful for increased tone and you can deliver it by mouth you can deliver it directly into the central nervous system with a pump and for children who've got a severe spastic and dystonic cerebral palsy that's total body involvement, sometimes that can be really helpful. And then going beyond that, and I know I think there are some other podcast episodes available that look at the, what would be called the surgical options for management of tone. Um, for the children who've got predominantly lower limb involvement cerebral palsy, they go through a process of being considered appropriate to have a selective dorsal rhizotomy, which is going to change the excitatory messages going to their legs. And these children have to be really carefully selected with a proper MGT assessment before the procedure because you want to make sure they've got adequate strength that will be maintained after the procedure because there's no point really making a child less stiff in their legs or less increased tone in their legs if they're not going to be able to have the power to continue to walk so that we need to make sure they've got decent strength particularly in their um their glutes um so it's it has to be very carefully done with a specialist team of physios and therapists and surgeons so we've got other other ways we can help with that increased tone in the muscles, um, botulinum toxin is relevant for some some children. We have to think about functional goals when that's being used by a specialist service. So we don't just want to make a muscle less stiff so it's less stiff. We want to do it so that it improves the child's functional participation. So that goal might be to free up their, say if they had a hemiplegia and they wanted to free up some of the movement in their upper limb to allow more, make it easier for them to open jars or eat with a knife and fork, or even the, the functional goal of being a bit less self-conscious that their arm swing looks really different on that side. Functional goals might be if a child has got a quadriplegia and their legs really scissor across, it's to make it easier to do their personal cares, to change their pads. The other treatment threads you might see and it would be good to especially for the clinicals have an understanding that children might use orthotics for maintaining a foot position to help normalize their gait make it a bit more physiological children can use orthotics even if they're not walking to maintain a good foot position to help them stand comfortably so even maintaining some time in standing can be really important for bone health you need the gravity through your long bones to help them mineralize um so being being familiar that that's something you might be looking for some children where there's hypotonia and a, a bit of ataxia as a predominant feature of the cerebral palsy will be using lycra suits. There's the theory that that extra squeeze, that tightness, gives a bit more proprioceptive input and helps them have a bit more awareness of where their body is in space. And for some, functionally, it makes a huge difference, but it, it's a bit of an undertaking. It needs specialist input to make sure these fit properly. And as you can imagine, when children are growing, they sometimes don't last for long. Coming on to the role of occupational therapy, so participation in activities of daily living, you can see all sorts of snazzy eating aids to allow children to be less passive in their um, eating and more participating in family mealtimes and aids to help them participate in school at the desk. The role of physiotherapy in maintaining joint range, stretching programs, having functional goals again if you need a bit of support to keep your core strong, and then more highly specialised services which are often led by speech and language or specialised OTs about getting a communication aid right for the learning level of a child. So recognising when you see a child with a motor disorder there's so much more going on than their motor disorder and being clear about what their child's what the child's goals are what the family's goals are and making sure you're plugging them into the right services to achieve those and is there much involvement of school in that as well yeah absolutely 
dependent on the school setting for the child, uh, being aware that you might be involved in writing medical reports for an education and healthcare plan. And you have to think in this sort of systemic way about the child, not just about the motor disorder, so that the recommendations you're writing don't just refer to their mobility. They have to have functional goals for participation at school as well. Another important factor when you're thinking about the education for children with cerebral palsy is our role in flagging where learning disability needs to be considered because we're not the ones diagnosing learning disability it's from you know cognitive profiles through educational psychology but flagging that it's an important thing to be recognized and sometimes to a degree formalized because that's important to carry through transition to adult services um, if it's relevant for that child having a formal diagnosis of a learning disability make sure that they get offered annual care reviews with their GP when they leave paediatric services and also recognizing social communication differences you're much more likely to have a diagnosis of an autism spectrum disorder if you've got another brain disorder uh, and sort of recognizing the subtleties of difference if a child's not communicating is it because of a motor impairment is it because of a sensory impairment? Is it because of their learning level? Or is it because of their motivation to do social communication and how they're processing your attempts at communication? So lots to think about there. Absolutely. And I guess it just keeps going back to the point about thinking about the child as a whole and not, not thinking about the cerebral palsy in isolation. Absolutely. So another aspect of managing patients with cerebral palsy is managing secretions as well. Yeah, that's right. And I think coming back to what the goals are for a child and a family, it can be really easy to forget the importance of this. It can be quite stigmatizing if you are drooling a lot of the time. I've known and had experience with families where a child's teased about it. There's also physically, it can be really uncomfortable. You can start to get chapping, chafing, fungal infections in the folds of the neck. So getting an idea of how high up their list of priorities and management of secretions is can be really important, making sure you've got a shared agenda for what's important for this family, because it can be managed. There's oral medication, glycopyrrolate, there's transdermal medicines, so hyacin patches. There's some really nice little studies comparing the two, but in reality, it's often about what's the right profile for that family and what's going to fit into their life. And for some, it's a really significant difficulty, and particularly for children who aren't orally feeding ligation is available for salivary glands but it's not it's not that commonly used just thinking about other related health problems is there anything else that people should think about in terms of managing children with cerebral palsy i think two, two important threads would be making sure you've got a joined up approach to managing seizures and who's responsible for anti-epileptic plans seizure management plans emergency plans and how you might escalate or de-escalate that if the child's also got an epilepsy and bone health there is a really nice nice guideline about spasticity and bone health and you have the thread of thinking which is to do with making sure you've got some good orthopedic surveillance if a child is an ambulant you need to be doing regular surveillance that they of their hips and spine and the, there's the thread of thinking about have you got a, a good setup for good mineralization of those bones so generally speaking for these children we aim for a vitamin d level of 75 or more so it's that slightly higher threshold thanks ellie one last question on management are there any emergency situations which we need to know about in managing children with cerebral palsy I would say, yeah, there's one emergency that's really considered the only 
sort of pure neurodisability emergency because obviously these children who have cerebral palsy are more likely to have epilepsy so you've got to think about your status epilepticus management but there's also the state of being in a prolonged state of dystonia which can lead to a crisis that can end in multi-organ failure and is really painful and distressing as well so this is status dystonicus so this is a situation where you can have some sort of irritative problem that happens to this child who's prone to going into episodes of dystonia but then they quickly get into a spiral of increased tone increased discomfort increased muscle contraction and that can do all sorts of things that can increase your temperature it can lead to those muscles if they're being contracted for prolonged periods they can actually go into a state of breakdown then you have release of myoglobin into the bloodstream myoglobinuria and you can go into a state of acidosis and it's really it can be really dangerous you want to try and spot it early and get on top of it early and that that's not always possible unfortunately but being aware that if you have a child presenting with stiffness that does not look like some sort of non-convulsive status they are perhaps febrile, sweaty, they appear in pain but are struggling to communicate that with you. You need to be checking the, the biochemical parameters and thinking, is this status dystonicus? So there are some nice articles that help you sort of give a severity to it that can guide your management. But I think that's probably in a bit too much detail for this purpose. But just getting an idea of, are they reasonably comfortable? Have they got no changes in their biochemistry have you checked their urine for myoglobin have you checked their plasma creatine kinase have you checked their ph and if so that'll help you guide what level of treatment they might need and that's going to be the oral drugs to bring down tone it's going to be and usually we're looking at um, baclofen clonidine but there's also a role for tetrabenzene which is not often used outside of status dystonicus it's really safe for this occasion and then if these oral or um, intravenous medications aren't working, you would go on to infusions to really sedate and get control of the situation. So that could even be going as far as a propofol infusion. And once you're getting control of the situation like that, um, thinking about intrathecals, uh, particularly baclofen and surgery for deep brain stimulation. So once you reach that point, if you're going beyond the oral medications, you need to be thinking about admission to intensive care. Brilliant. Thank you so much for going through that with this Ellie. I, I think it's really important not just obviously from the revising for your exam perspective but also having a, a good understanding of, of children with this condition because you will almost certainly um, meet patients with cerebral palsy throughout your time in, in paediatrics. Yeah definitely so I, I really think you can be revising for your exams thinking about what's going to crop up thinking how am I going to show I've got a slick examination for spasticity and dystonia but also think about these children are children (laughs) they need a team around them to help them participate and function to the best of their ability and live in comfort and free free from pain as best we can help them absolutely and i mean from the exam perspective as well children with cerebral palsy could be in lots of different stations of the clinical exam so assessing development or neurology or even history taking and that's why it's quite important to have a good good understanding of of diagnosis and management because you'll Mm. be expected to kind of pick up those those different aspects brilliant thank you so much for that ellie that was brilliant run through of of this topic of cerebral palsy the diagnosis and management before we finish up i just wonder if you wouldn't mind answering our quick fire questions sure so 
exactly the same as last time. So are there any kind of classic exam questions that you would recommend people know inside out before going into their exams? I would suggest when we're thinking about diagnosis and management, I think for your your written exams, getting comfortable with some of those tone medications. You don't have to be an expert on them, but having an understanding about what, what their function is and also the, the management of secretions would be useful. So the patches and the oral medication and how those work. But more for your clinical exam, this could be really relevant. So you might be thinking about doing a gait assessment, a neurological exam, describing it adequately. You might have a communication station for a child who's transitioning to adult services and you need to go through what their MDT involvement. You might have a family where you're involved in breaking the news of what cerebral palsy is. So practicing how you would describe it to them in clear, plain English. I think that'd be quite a useful thing to to have a go at now. I think those are really brilliant pointers and things that, you know, people should definitely go away and have a, have a good think about. So question two, is there any kind of useful resource that you'd recommend people going back and having a look at? I think some of the, the useful things are, I, I think it's good to be aware of now before your exams and before you're going into your core registrar community placements, have a look at some of those nice guidelines, particularly the ones to do with spasticity and bone health, but also the, there's the cerebral palsy and under 25s guideline. Have a little look at those I think that will give you a good standing on the multidisciplinary management of these. Great. And the final question is, what are your three takeaway learning points that you hope will stick in people's head after listening to this podcast? Okay, so number one, if you're diagnosing cerebral palsy, does your history match with your clinical signs, match with your neuroradiology? If not, think again. Number two, you're one tiny cog in the wheel that keeps this child functioning and participating and acknowledge that and try and do that role well and understand the role of others. And number three, have a have an appreciation of some of that medical management because that's the sort of thing that can crop up in the written exams particularly. So drugs for movement disorder, drugs for secretions. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for uh, taking time out of your busy schedule to to speak with us today, Ellie. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Master the MRCPCH. If you want to get in touch, you can do so via social media. You can find GOSH Learning Academy on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. If you want to hear more about the work of the GOSH Learning Academy, you can visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We also have lots of exciting new podcasts coming soon. To find out more, search GOSH Pods wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and we'll see you again next time. Bye.